Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, November 6th. In today's news, Gordon Sundland changes his story. Bill Barr pushes to release a report critical of the Russia probe by Thanksgiving, and a tight-knit Mormon community mourns the massacre of women and children in Mexico. But first, the big idea. Democrats are claiming victory this morning in a close Kentucky governor's race, and they've taken control of the state legislature in Virginia. The results of Tuesday's off-year elections have left Republicans stumbling and increasingly uncertain about their own political fates next year as they're increasingly tied to an embattled and unpopular president. Many allies of President Trump are rushing to explain away the poor performance of incumbent Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin while other GOP veterans expressed alarm about the party's failure in a state that Trump won by 30 points in 2016 and where he campaigned on Monday night. Although Bevin was controversial and widely disliked, he was also a devotee of the president, embracing Trump's agenda and his anti-establishment persona. And in the contest's final days, Bevin sought to cast the race as a referendum on impeachment, which two in three Kentucky voters oppose. But that wasn't enough and Republicans got blown out just like they did in the midterms in the suburbs, outside Cincinnati and Louisville. Democrat Andy Bashir declared victory early this morning with a lead of several thousand votes and all the precincts reporting. Bevin is refusing to concede. Allies of Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader who's up for re-election next year in Kentucky, argued that Bevin's loss doesn't indicate any looming trouble for him. They say it's all on Bevin, who challenged McConnell in a 2014 primary. No love loss there. Some Republicans, however, also viewed Bashir's appeals to moderation as a sign that Republicans can't take red states for granted. Instead of drifting to the left, the son of former Governor Steve Bashir railed against Bevin's divisive style and his attempts to impose work requirements on Medicaid recipients. Trump campaigning fared much better in deep red Mississippi, where Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves defeated Democratic Attorney General Jim Hood in that state's governor's race. Perhaps the biggest story of the night, though, came in Virginia. Democrats gained control of both houses of the Virginia General Assembly for the first time since 1993. Democrats flipped at least two seats in the state Senate and at least five in the House of Delegates to claim majorities in both. The sweep completes a dramatic political conversion from red to blue of a southern state on Washington's doorstep. The last Republican in the Northern Virginia delegation, Delegate Tim Hugo, went down. The result enables another remarkable rebirth. Democratic Governor Ralph Northam, just nine months after nearly resigning over the blackface scandal, stands poised to be one of the most consequential Virginia governors in modern times. The new Democratic majority is younger, more diverse, and much more liberal than Virginia Democrats of the past. Northam promised last night to work with them to enact strict gun control measures, protect LGBTQ rights, and fight climate change. It's not your parents, Virginia, but it was a night of historic firsts. Ghazala Hashmi, a Democrat, is the first Muslim woman ever elected to the Virginia Senate. She captured a suburban Richmond district that had been held by Republicans. In Arizona, Regina Romero is poised to become the first woman and the first Latina to be the mayor of Tucson. Kentucky elected Republican Daniel Cameron as attorney general, the first African-American to ever hold that post. And Safiya Khalid, 
was elected to serve on the city council in Lewiston, Maine. She is a Somali immigrant. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, this is important. Gordon Sunland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, significantly revised the testimony he gave less than three weeks ago to House impeachment investigators. He now says he told a top Ukrainian official that U.S. assistance to the country would likely resume only if Kiev opened investigations requested by Trump that would be damaging to Joe Biden. In a supplemental declaration provided to the House impeachment investigators on Monday, Sunland wrote, quote, I now recall speaking individually with a Ukrainian official and in that conversation saying that resumption of USAID would likely not occur until Ukraine provided the public anti-corruption statement. Sunland's new statement adds to a growing body of testimony by senior national security officials that describes an effort directed by Trump himself and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, to link nearly $400 million in security assistance to investigations that would politically benefit the president. Sunland, who got his ambassadorship after giving a million bucks to Trump's political efforts, cleaned up his sworn testimony only after he discovered that other witnesses had contradicted him and undermined claims that he had made under oath. Issuing this statement insulates him from potential perjury charges. In his opening statement to the House last month, Sunland said he had no knowledge whatsoever of the White House holding up security assistance to press for the investigations. But then, a week later, Bill Taylor, the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, challenged Sunland's claim. Taylor testified that Sunland, in a meeting with Ukrainian officials in Poland in September, had conditioned the release of the funding on an investigation targeting the Bidens. After word got out about what Taylor had said behind closed doors, Sunland's attorney, Bob Luskin, said his client didn't recall it. Sunland now says that the testimony of Taylor's and others, quote, refreshed my recollection. The transcript released yesterday of Sunland's deposition highlights how much power Giuliani, as a private lawyer, has over crafting official U.S. foreign policy. The impeachment committees also announced that they have formally requested acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney appear on Saturday. He's not expected to comply. But a senior advisor to Vice President Pence is likely to comply with a request to testify on Thursday. Jennifer Williams would be the first person on Pence's national security team to appear. She has knowledge of how much the vice president knew and when he knew it about the efforts by Trump. Williams was on the phone call on July 25th. She's a longtime State Department staffer who's been detailed to Pence's office as a special advisor on European and Russian affairs. Number two, Justice Department officials are trying to release in the coming weeks a potentially explosive Inspector General report about the FBI's investigation into Trump's 2016 campaign. One person involved in the discussions tells us that the target date for the report's release has been November 20th. But another indicates that the Justice Department is unlikely to deliver it by then, and it is more likely to come after Thanksgiving because of the complicated and contentious mix of legal classification and political issues at play. The report's findings will mark a major public test of Attorney General Bill Barr's credibility, given his past suggestions of significant problems with the investigative decisions that were made by former FBI leaders involved in the case. The findings by Inspector General Michael Horowitz will also set the stage for a separate but related investigation led by U.S. Attorney John Durham of Connecticut. 
He's investigating how U.S. intelligence agencies pursued allegations that Russian agents might have conspired with Trump associates during the 2016 campaign. Officials have recently said that Durham's investigation is now pursuing potential criminal charges. Barr has spent weeks working on the declassification decisions, as Horowitz scrutinized a lot of classified information to assess how the FBI launched and pursued this investigation and related cases. But a number of key figures in the probe have yet to receive draft sections of the Inspector General's findings, which they do, that's standard operating procedure. That suggests that the public release is still at least a couple weeks away. It is possible, too, that as draft language of the Horowitz report is shared with different people, the entire process could get bogged down by disputes about the accuracy of certain passages. The IG's work is independent of the attorney general, but in this case, the two guys must work closely because the inspector general doesn't have the authority to declassify information. Barr does. Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, a Republican from South Carolina, is planning to huddle privately later today with Barr to talk about the planned rollout of the IG report. Horowitz notably has not been invited to that meeting. Republicans hope they can time the release of the report for maximum impact to help the president. Number three, this is really tragic. Three mothers set out on Monday morning in a caravan of SUVs, leaving their isolated religious hamlet in northern Mexico with 14 children in tow. Wary of the drug cartels that patrol the region, families like theirs from the fundamentalist Mormon settlement of Lamora knew to travel by day to avoid danger, and they knew to travel together. But the women hadn't ventured far when, for reasons that are still unclear, armed attackers descended on them. Gunmen sprayed one SUV with bullets, Then they set it on fire, killing one mother and all four of her children. A few miles east, gunmen opened fire on the other vehicles, killing the two other mothers and two more kids. Several other children were injured and airlifted to a hospital. In the broad but tight-knit community of ultra-religious Mormons, where so many are related by blood, marriage, and friendship, the violent deaths of the three women and their young children rippled out. Relatives say the six children who died ranged in ages from eight months to 12 years. Lamora, where the families lived, is a 1,000-acre ranch community in Mexico's Sonora state that includes about 30 to 40 households. Many of the residents are dual citizens. Some of the families grow pecans. Others are ranchers. And some bounce back and forth between Mexico and the United States for construction work. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, November 6th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry are in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. It's updated whenever news happens. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. I'll talk to you tomorrow.